Welcome back to the Now Age podcast with me, Ruby Warrington, and Happy New Year. If you're listening at the time this episode is first airing, it is the first week of January 2019. And fittingly, we're going to be talking today all about getting sober curious. Yes, my book of the same name just came out. And yes, of course, this was timed so that the book could be of service to anybody who may be using a dry January to kickstart a longer term reevaluation to your relationship to alcohol. If this is you, you are going to love this conversation with Lee Tillman, who you may know from Instagram as Lee from America. Lee has been very open and vocal about her own sober curiosity this past year, and I really wanted to hear the full story. It turns out that Lee's story is actually very similar to mine, which also makes me think that her story could be many of our stories. This is something I touch on in the book Sober Curious, how many of us have similar negative experiences or conflicted feelings about booze, but that this isn't something that often gets spoken about openly outside of recovery communities. In this episode, we get deep into Lee's experience of getting sober curious and what the term means for her, problem eating as a precursor to problem drinking, drugs and partying as a way to feel validated and play a role that we've actually been sold by society and the media, the root of the feelings or even of the self that we're attempting to run away from or even disavow with all kinds of addictive behaviors and how this is often as simple and as devastating as not feeling like it's acceptable to be your true self. On a more practical level, we discuss the potential impact of getting sober curious on our friendships and social life, which can be very daunting for people when they're considering making this shift. And so we also talk about how making new sober curious friends can be a natural evolution when we allow it to unfold in its own time. We get into the importance of being present with whatever it is we don't want to be feeling and of getting whatever support with this that you need. And above all, if you're looking to make a lasting, sustainable shift to your drinking, we talk about how to really stay connected to the very personal why for getting sober curious. I know you're going to find this conversation really fascinating. Lee is such a brilliant example of somebody who's used social media as a platform to really express herself fully. And I feel kind of reclaim and own the person that she is. So I hope you like getting to know her a bit better in this episode as much as I did. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. It's nice to finally kind of sort of semi meet you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Um, I, I really wanted to chat to you um, because of all the people who've been kind of engaging with my platform and engaging with my work, you've really picked up on this term sober curious um, and run with it and really embraced it. And I love the way that you're sharing it with your followers and uh, kind of applying it to your own journey with alcohol um, and other drugs and other addictive behaviors, I suppose. And I wonder what it is about this term sober curious that really kind of speaks to you and what sober curiosity means to you. Great. Yeah. So I, the, the term sober curious means something different to so many different people. And to me, what it means, and, and, and it should, because everyone's, everyone's journey is so different and everyone has, is coming from a different place when they are either using or not using or choosing to abstain for whatever reason. I, I, I call myself a sober curious person because the other option that is, is kind of a label is, is I'm, I'm fully sober or I am an alcoholic or I am in AA. And I, I actually tried AA back when I moved to Los Angeles in 2015 and I gave it a couple shots. I went to a couple different meetings and I didn't find myself relating to the content of the meeting or the 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 doctrine of it so much um, it didn't it didn't catch my heart and it didn't catch my attention and at that point I actually wasn't 
um, I wasn't drinking and I was kind of abstaining without, you know, the support of a group like AA, but I wanted to connect with other people who were not drinking for one reason or another. And I kind of felt when I was in the AA meetings that it wasn't my, I, I, I felt like I didn't necessarily experience what they experienced and I didn't have the same sort of alcoholic tendencies that they did. I just kind of wanted to make friends and hang out with people who weren't alco- weren't into drinking. And I was in a new city, and so I was like, oh, maybe I'll meet these people at AA, and I realized that my my motives for being there were, were not the right motives because um, I really just wanted to find a support group for that. And so I, I didn't really find that at AA, so I actually ended up finding it more like in yoga and in the healthy food community and stuff like that. Um, and then when I came across the term Sober Curious, which is actually I think I found it through you, um, through your events in New York, like the soda events, mm-hmm. I, I, I started reading some of your posts about it and I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I'm experiencing right now. And this is like a couple years ago before your ebook, you know, all that kind of, before all that stuff, I read some of your posts and I was like, this is, this is kind of how I feel about, about alcohol. And my journey is not a journey of, you know, and, and of course you don't have to have like a crazy journey to be an alcoholic. You can also have kind of like, you know, a silently, um, you know, a silent journey or you don't have to be a raging alcoholic to be an alcoholic. But I kind of felt like, um, closer to that term and closer to the words and the, the, the kind of ideas and the experiences behind the, the sober curious movement more than the, the AA movement. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of my story, I guess, and how I kind of like found the, found out about it and why I've kind of held on to that. It, this is making so much sense to me because when I was um, getting ready for our call today, I was looking at some articles on your website and I found the piece where you talk about your relationship to alcohol and partying. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, your story is my story. Like our stories are so similar. There are so many like also quite strange kind of coincidence things. Like we both moved to New York in 2012. We both didn't drink in our teens because we both had issues with eating and were too scared of the calories to go anywhere near alcohol. Um, there are just kind of tons and tons of similarities. And likewise, I'd like to hear you share this now as well. Like I was actually going to ask you a bit later on about what your experience was of going to AA and why, do you, why you didn't continue. But I had an exactly the same experience as you. I wanted to find a community of people where I could talk about this very kind of conflicted feelings I was having about alcohol, which were largely around like, well, why is it so hard to find other people who don't want to drink? Why am I an outsider if I'm the one who's choosing Mm -hmm. not to drink? And what Mm -hmm. I found when I went to AA was an amazing support group for alcoholics. And that wasn't a label that I felt applied to me experience. And I felt like an imposter in those meetings. I felt like taking the place of somebody who, who needed that meeting much more than I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's really um, affirming, I suppose, to hear somebody speak of having a, exactly the same experience. And that's one of the reasons I started Club Soda NYC, because I realized there was a massive gap. It was like either you're a quote unquote normal drinker or you're an alcoholic and you're going to AA. And I'm like, well, what about everybody in between? Exactly. There's so many different, it's like, there's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that can apply to any kinds of addictions, right? Whether it's to alcohol or other drugs or whether it's, whether it's an eating disorder. Because likewise, when I had an eating disorder in my teens, I was loath to ever call myself anorexic because I was never hospitalized. Like it never got that bad. So I felt like mm. calling myself anorexic. I was, I don't know, I was an imposter again in, in that sort of area. So a spectrum yeah. in so many ways, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Um, you do talk about your, how your eating disorder in a way was a precursor to the problems that you later on had with alcohol and partying. And there's a quote um, from somebody at your... Um, your rehab that you that you mentioned where she says, make sure you monitor her drug and alcohol use. I see about half my patients switch between an eating disorder issues to alcohol and substance abuse. Which yeah. I've never heard that before. So that was yeah. 
very open to me. Um, and I wonder if you could maybe just kind of expand a little bit on what you see as the link between issues with food and eating, which I think honestly many, many more people probably suffer than would ever label themselves as having an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and alcohol and substance abuse. What do you see as the link there, having kind of walked that path yourself? Yeah, so the the person who actually said that quote that's in my blog post on, on alcohol and partying, um, she was actually my 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 main kind of uh, psychologist, therapist, and and guide uh, guidance counselor at that rehabilitation center. For I was actually. Um, at the Rehabilitation Center for Eating Disorders, Alcoholics, and Narcotic um, drug, drug Addicts because, because they believed that these were all so similar, they actually put us all in a, you know, the same building. Of course, we had different kind of schedules and activities throughout the day. The alcoholics were going to a different activity than the drug addicts and the, and the eating disorder, of course, but, but we did have some big group meetings and we would have, you know, um, if we graduated, we'd have like our lunches together, and we were also required uh, to go to an AA or NA meeting just to kind of see and experience that. So I actually went to my first AA or NA meeting at that age, um, at 18. Um, and I remember when my mom came to pick me up, my guidance counselor, therapist, you know, very lazadaisically, just, you know, she gave me a hug and kiss goodbye. And of course, we're crying and smiling and saying bye. It was kind of bittersweet leaving. And, and she just looks at my mom and she shakes her hand and she just goes, oh, and by the way, monitor her, her alcohol and drug use. Um, And she said it in front of me and I just thought, that's never going to happen. I'm going to be fine. Like, you know, eating disorder is my thing. I'm never going to be one of those people that, you know, I saw come through the doors of this clinic, you know, because we had, I saw, I saw people die in that clinic. There were people who came in for heroin abuse and they, a couple people died during my months there um, where I would see them one day and then the next day they had died um, detoxing. And so it was a very kind of eye opening thing. And I said, oh, I'm never doing that. I'm never going to use drugs. And um, I guess, you know, because the eating disorder was so focused on the, the calories and the, the consuming of sugars that I really stayed away from alcohol. And then when I went to college um, that spring, that fall, after getting out of that rehab center, I, of course, was, you know, living out of home for the first time. And, you know, college campuses are huge grounds for underage drinking. And so I kind of started you know, drinking here and there. And I did have like one little slip back with my eating disorder, but I didn't have to go back to therapy or or, um, I didn't have to go back to uh, treatment or anything. I could just kind of do outpatient therapy, which was great. But I did end up um, starting to drink uh, pretty heavily my sophomore year of college and um, smoking weed and um, still not doing any drugs, but just hard or harder drugs. I was just doing weed and, and alcohol, but I was definitely like drinking a lot and smoking a lot of pot. And then my junior year, I studied abroad and um, in London. And for my 21st birthday, I, I got cocaine from, a, from one of my housemates for my birthday and for a night out in London. And that was my first time doing drugs. And I believe we also did like Molly. And um, that was like my first time doing drugs. And I just loved them. I just absolutely loved them. I knew I would love them. And I did love them. I loved the way I felt. I loved how they were. I thought they were so kind of like, um, posh, especially because I was living in London. And I was just like, Oh, this is so cool. I'm doing drugs in London. We're going to Paris. And and I just thought it was, I don't know, I just felt so adult and, um, and just kind of also like sticky. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, that was probably the first kind of eye opener for me, which was like, oh, I love these. I love the way that they make me feel. And then the senior year, year after that, I actually swung back towards really healthy. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do drugs and drink anymore. I'm actually going to do Bikram yoga. I decided to quit pot. So I stopped smoking pot. Um, haven't really smoked a lot of pot since, since then, actually, since my college days. Uh, but then when I graduated from college, so I was like clean for a year and like doing yoga and eating healthy again and feeling really good. So I like swung the other way on the pendulum and then I moved to New York City and then swung really hard on the other edge of the pendulum and did even more drugs. And especially when I moved to New York and 
um, started hanging out with people in the, um, the dance music scene and dated a guy who was, you know, a manager for a DJ and, um, and I was just, you know, really in that world. And before I knew it, I was down the path really quickly escalating, you know, if I didn't pull myself out of it, I probably would have had to go back to that treatment center and I would have been on the other side of the building for drugs and alcohol. Mm. Again, there are so many parallels to my story there. It's kind of uncanny, not least, you know, the, the fact that London, the kind of like cool London scene was the backdrop to you getting into drugs. Pot was the first drug that you stopped. <laughs> that was the first drug that I stopped as mm. well. <laughs> um, and then dating someone in the music scene, my now husband, and when I met him, got into the music scene, he was doing, um, you know, promoting parties and DJs at the time. And it just was such a seductive, glamorous life on so many levels. And yet looking back, I really realized, and I wonder if this resonates with you, that it was a seductive, glamorous life that I had been sold by kind of movies and media that I was desperate on some level to be a part of because it would make me feel like validated it would make me feel like yes okay I'm a I'm a cool person I'm a person who deserves to be living a great life you know and mm -hmm. so taking drugs and drinking tons enabled me to be part of that scene that wasn't really a great fit for me like there were tons of things that I enjoyed about it like I love dancing I know you love dancing too <laughs> I love dancing even more sober that's like when you can really feel the music right but yeah, it just really, um, I think that the drugs and the alcohol for me, yeah, enabled me to be somebody who I'd seen in the movies that wasn't really who I am. Does that resonate with yeah. you? It does. It does. And I think one thing for me is that I, I think the whole time I was just trying to escape. I was just trying to get out. And I think the reason that I love drugs and alcohol is because they did make me feel like I was leaving my body and I was leaving myself and I wasn't comfortable with myself. I didn't really feel like I would be truly accepted for who I was. And I truly felt like drugs and alcohol were my cloak that, that I would lean on where I would almost kind of like myself more and be able to kind of stand myself more. If I were under the, I felt like I was more fun when I was on drugs and alcohol. I thought it was more sexy. I certainly felt more confident and I just loved how they made, they took me out of my brain. They took me away from these thoughts that were really harmful. Mm -hmm. Agree again on so many levels. And you, you described that in the blog post, you described the feeling that you were trying to avoid as a dark, massive void of emptiness, which sounds pretty frightening. But I also think that's something a lot of people could relate to. If you take all of the kind of external ways that we use to escape or distract ourselves away and we're left just with us in this kind of eternal present moment that can be quite an overwhelming feeling whether there's like you know dark deep-seated trauma that's waiting to be felt or whether it's just like the overwhelming insignificance of being a human being and I wonder that kind of empty feeling what do you what do you think that comes from? What do you think that's about? Why do you think so many of them feel this kind of emptiness that we try and fill with food or drugs or alcohol or shopping or whatever it is? Or we also equally try to escape from using substances that kind of like fill in the emptiness with a different version of us, you know, that feels like it's a happier version or whatever. I think that everyone, well, I, I'm not sure how to say it. I think that, Everyone comes, everyone knows what that void is, but not everyone, everyone is, comes from a different place. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, all of our voids come from the same, I think that they all kind of, we all can relate to the same feeling, but sometimes they do come from sexual trauma. Sometimes they come from um, physical abuse. Sometimes they come from mental abuse. And I think a lot of the times, um, they come from, you know, our formative years when we're, when we're young children. Um, and we kind of are, are shaped. Um, that's one way of thinking it. Um, sometimes some people believe that it comes from like past life. Um, I personally believe mine came from truly feeling confident in myself and in my sexuality and in my always, I always felt like I didn't belong. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a town where you were expect one was especially a woman, a female or a girl was expected to be very 
um, put together, thin, smart, submissive, quiet, but also the right amount of loud and the right amount of, of polite and funny, but not too presidential. Um, more of kind of like, you know, it didn't feel like the women ruled the house and um, it kind of felt like more patriarchal. And I, from such a young age, was super sensitive to these ideals that were surrounded and by, that a lot of a lot of women were falling victim to. And I, I always felt like my, my person, my my authentic self didn't belong and wasn't welcomed in that in that environment because I was um, more fluid in my sexuality. I was more. Um, uh, I, I was a little bit more outrageous, a little bit more loud, a little bit more kind of, I guess, honest. I, I also wasn't afraid of not playing the rules and, and I wasn't afraid of kind of going against the rules, but also kind of felt like that wasn't welcome. There were a couple instances that happened when I was a young girl where it was very made very clear to me by people in authoritative positions that your behavior, your 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 person yourself you are not that you cannot act that way in this place and that really really affected me and it made me feel like i couldn't truly be myself and so i struggled for 20 years maybe even more 25 years um trying to figure out how i could make trying to just accept myself because i kind of felt like i wasn't accepted and um and that's where I truly believe that my personal void came from. And I also was sexually abused when I was three um, by uh, somebody in that uh, my family knew. And that was also extremely, extremely traumatizing and something that I've only now really started to work on and work through with the help of a trained psychologist because I always kind of just put it in the back of my mind. And now I'm really realizing like, whoa, that really does have an effect. Even when you're that young, it really does have an effect on you. And, um, and just releasing that shame and that feeling like I did something wrong. And that even though it happened to me, making, letting go of the shame of feeling like I, I was actually the person who, who kind of enabled it. And I'm still kind of working through that right now. Yeah, it's a, a lot to work through. And thank you for sharing that. So honestly, here, um, I think that the, I think that many more women, I mean, as we're even seeing, you know, against the backdrop of the Me Too movement, many more women would ever feel comfortable talking about it, let alone really even often admitting or accepting that some things that have happened to us were abuse, have suffered abuse, sexual abuse. And I can't remember the exact statistic, but if, I remember reading somewhere that a very high proportion of female alcoholics have a history of sexual abuse. Um, wow. So yeah, I think that the lingering, unprocessed, unacknowledged trauma of an incident like that, incident or incidents, can absolutely lead to these kinds of behaviours that we're talking about. I did a, hosted a panel as one of our... Um, Club Soda at NYC events recently where I had a psychologist on and he was talking about how PC's addiction is actually just a symptom of an unacknowledged and an unhealed trauma that's still living in us that requires some kind of a catharsis before we're able to move on from it. And that once we are able to have an emotional catharsis around whatever that trauma was, the addiction becomes irrelevant. There's no, it's no longer presenting because the, um, the wound is healed, so there's no more symptom, right? Wow. It's such an interesting way of thinking about addiction. We think about addiction, particularly in the AA kind of conversation and alcoholism, as an incurable brain disease. And that's so, that to me sounds quite far removed from this more holistic, perhaps, approach of thinking of, 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 of this as well, here's a behavior that's presenting as a cope, but here's a coping mechanism, actually, for some kind of pain that exists in this person's being that has not been addressed. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at that. And again, thank you for sharing. And I think what you shared about, you know, the way that women in particular are kind of prescribed a very restrictive and narrowly drawn role 
quite early yeah. in our lives, particularly in the UK and America and these very patriarchal societies. As a woman, you look, perform, behave, sound like this. This is what makes you lovable, attractive, desirable, and what ultimately mm-hmm. will keep you safe and protected. By the yeah. You know, it will buy you your place within our society. Um, mm-hmm. And going against that, whether it's with your sexuality, whether it's with your personal expression, can be enough to have you victimized. I mean, it goes all the way back to the witch trials, right? Yeah. 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 You describe your, um, your rock bottom moment in your, in your blog post as really something not that dramatic. It was kind of a realization that through the way that you were using drugs, the way that you were partying, you were preventing yourself from really living your full potential or from doing something meaningful with your life. And I think that, and I love the way you describe that as your rock bottom, because I think for many of us, and myself included, I think I've often thought, well, I never had a rock bottom. So that's why it took me so long to address the drinking that I knew was kind of harming me and similarly, like preventing me from really living my fullest life or living as my true self. Um, Because I think a lot of the time we think of a rock bottom as having to be a DUI or like losing a job or mm-hmm. grievous mm-hmm. bodily harm as a result of our drinking, right? But yep. I like the idea that a rock bottom can just be this realization. Can you just describe that moment for yourself? Why it was so, why it was so impactful, why it was so profound, mm-hmm. why it was enough actually for you to completely then go on to change the way you, the way you think about drinking and to really address it. Right. Well, I think before I, I explain that rock bottom moment, it's important for me to to, to explain the, the, the needless cycle that I was in where I was during that summer in particularly where I was really spiraling downwards. It was just a cycle where I would go out, use drugs, stay out till you know early in the morning, go to work the next day with just the worst hangover. And I would just say, you know, I'm not doing that again tonight. I'm not doing that again tonight. I'm going to stay in. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to kind of go for a run. And then, you know, 6 p.m. would hit and I would get on my group chat with my friends and I'd say, all right, guys, where are we going tonight? Or someone would text me. I would actually go home maybe and go to get into bed and make dinner. And at at 9 p.m. I'd get a text from, you know, a guy friend saying, you know, I got us on the list for this DJ in Brooklyn, like warehouse party come through. And I would just get my dress on and my, you know, call my drug dealer and I'd be in a cab to the, to the DJ, you know, of, you know, whatever. Mm. And I would go out and I'd be like, again, it was just, it was just happening. Like all of a sudden it was happening like maybe once or twice a week and then four nights a week and then seven nights a week. And I could not escape it. Mm. And so my, my rock bottom, and I'm putting that in air quotes because Again, yes, it's not that I lost a house or, you know, I had to sell all my belongings or I was, was you know, getting a DUI or lost my job even because those things do happen and those, and those are, those are absolute rock bottoms. Mine was more of the, of, of a different story where I, my really close friend who, um, she was kind of like, you know, I, cause I had like my party friends that I would like do and use, use alcohol and drugs with. And then I had like my quote unquote real friends real closer friends that I like didn't I wouldn't say like because the, the drug and alcohol friends they were like friends too but mm-hmm. the, these other friends were more like the sober friends that would like see me in a face mask and come over during my breakups and they wouldn't you know you know put cocaine in my hand they would kind of you know give me their shoulder to cry on and I was on a little weekend trip to Montauk and um I think you know a couple of weeks before sh- this particular friend had heard from a friend that she they'd seen me out and that they were worried about me and so she was expressing worry and seeing her worried about me seeing a friend worried about me was kind of like whoa you know and she had actually told my mom like hey I'm worried about Lee uh, behind my back and that was a wake-up call and then when she took me out to Montauk for the weekend um, we were sitting on the train and I was staring out the window and I just started crying because I I felt like I was letting myself down, but I was letting others down and I wasn't being a good friend. And it just became super, super, I had this moment of clarity after living in a fog, after living in a deep, dark, black void fog for a year, all of a sudden I had this moment of like light of clarity come in, which brought me to my knees and it brought me to tears. And I just thought, 
um, I'm, if I go down this path, like I'm going to die. And, um, and I, I knew like I had to stop drinking and I knew that I had to like, I had to stop using alcohol because I knew that if I kept going that I would be back in that treatment center and I wouldn't be able to be living alone and independently in New York anymore. And I also knew that there was something else inside me that I was letting down that wanted to come out. And I was basically, I was basically only letting myself down. And that was really what kind of shook me awake where I was like, you have to be the one to make the choice to get better. You have to be the one to lift yourself out of this. No one's going to save you. No one's going to come after you. You have to get, you have to do this yourself. And that was kind of a moment where I was like, okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Wow, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was shortly after that that you started blogging, wasn't it? And you moved, like, it's, I mean, from reading your post, it sounds like everything kind of turned around quite fast. Like, you came back, that was it. There was no more drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Literally came back, and I, I decided to stop going out as much, and I saved up, and I bought a Vitamix, <laughs> like, a month later, and then I started blogging, because I bought this Vitamix, and I started making smoothies, and I joined a free run club. I did that twice a week instead of going to the bars. And I really, I mean, I really switched it on and, and flew back to the other side of the pendulum. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, was that like, um, was that a joyful time or was that kind of, un- did it feel slightly unstable as well? Like to swing to the other side of the pendulum so fast. Sounds it felt extremely like joyful. Mm. It, it was extremely joyful. Yes, mm. it was extremely joyful. I would say like, you know, a year later, or you know, six months later, when I actually moved to Los Angeles, and I was all of a sudden in a new city, where I didn't know anyone that was very unstabilizing. And that was kind of when I struggled again. But during those months in New York, where I was saving up to move to Los Angeles and to start my own company and to really reach my full potential. Um, that was a really, really, really electrifying time in my life. Like I just felt like I was on cloud nine for months because I was like, I'm, I'm picking myself up out of this. And even after like a month of not drinking, I just felt so much better. I was saving so much money by not going out. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm going to, I remember babysitting, you know, a couple nights a week too to supplement my income. And I was so focused on Instead of the instead of focusing on like when's my next next party, all of a sudden I was like, I'm gonna focus on this on 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 health and and feeling good, and I was just so excited. Mm, so cool, but yeah. Then, well, actually, no. Let's backtrack. So, I think that one thing that people when they are considering making a big change, like cutting out alcohol which is a big change mm-hmm. for someone who's yeah. like, you were describing it as like you were drinking every night. I, I never got to a point where I was drinking every night, but it was certainly like my entire social life revolved around alcohol and uh-huh. my kind of what felt like my closest friends at the time were the people I got really fucked up with because we had these crazy experiences that no one else really had. And there was this kind of like bond through that, I suppose. And so I think for a lot of people when they're thinking about cutting out, alcohol, substances, partying, the thought about the loneliness, the thought about losing those connections can be very, very fear-inducing. And I'm wondering, before you moved to LA and when you were back in New York, it sounds like you already had some other friends who weren't really part of that crowd, but was that a stumbling block for you at all? How did you explain your decision to the people that you'd been kind of hanging out and partying with? Like, what was the, how did those conversations go down? Well, I would say I really only had serious conversations with maybe two or three friends of in that in that world of in the you know the party friends where I said hey I'm really actually trying not to party but I really want to keep our friendship going um, let's you know grab a bite and um, you know hang out if you want um, and and luckily I'm, I actually still keep in touch with those people the other ones that like I was using with that I were as close with I just kind of slowly drifted apart you know that's part of part of life is you know people come in and out of your life I wasn't too attached to them and I also knew that for my own health and for my own sanity for my own mental was physical spiritual and emotional well-being it was in my best interest to disconnect from those people um, and I didn't you know didn't do it harshly and you know didn't didn't, you know, 
ghost anybody. It was more of just kind of a slow, natural, organic drift away. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, again, that's been the case with me and it's something I hear a lot. And I think there's that famous quote, right, that we're the kind of average of the five people we spend the most time with. And I think we start making big inner shifts those, mm-hmm. that kind of close circle just automatically shifts in order to reflect who we're becoming yeah. on the inside, if that makes sense. And it is a kind of an automatic thing. But I really like the fact that you, you say you consciously, there are a few people that you wanted to explain your position to and that you consciously said to them, I want to maintain our friendship and this is how we can do that. I find that's, there's a lot of respect in that and you showed a lot of respect for your friends. You showed that you weren't judging them for the choices they were still making, I guess. And you were clearly explaining, this is, this is what I'm doing for myself, you know, and I still mm-hmm. value our friendship, no matter what you are doing with, with your nighttime activities, you know, I think that's a really, that's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so then when you got to LA, it was harder. You were in a new town. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, like, you know, in New York, I still had my safety net there. And I think a little part of me, like a subconscious part of me knew that I, it was time for me to kind of get away from that safety net where I was only like a half an hour from my parents in Connecticut and, you know, my, my, um, all my, you know, a lot of my high school friends were in New York and it was just very safe and comfortable. And LA was kind of like, I did not know anybody. I knew maybe like two people. Um, and I didn't have any close friends or more kind of just like acquaintances or work acquaintances. And I guess I knew that I had to kind of move out here on a, on a subconscious level to really kind of expand my world and to be comfortable in the discomfort. Um, and I certainly, you know, got that because I moved to LA. I knew like two people and moved in with a stranger on Craigslist, who's now one of my best friends. Um, but at the time, you know, coming from New York, in New York, how do you get to know people? You go to the bars, you go out for drinks, you meet up with a friend after work, and you grab a cocktail at the latest speakeasy. And I didn't know, you know, how to hang out with people without alcohol and drugs, especially in a new city. It was the only way. And so I actually kind of for a couple months, I, I would actually go out and I would like maybe drink here and there. And I just hated it. I was like, the whole reason that I left New York was not to drink. But I just felt so stuck. And also, you know, I, I was desperate for friends. And so a lot of the people who were asking me to hang out were, you know, asked me to come to a party or come to this, you know, cocktail hour. And I was just like, you know, I got to say yes to everything right now. So I would do it. But it just felt so wrong and it actually caused a lot of social anxiety, which is something actually that I, I still struggle with. I mean, I went to a party on Saturday night, a Christmas party, and I was having a low-key panic attack because I definitely still struggle with social anxiety. Um, the, the social anxiety was definitely worse when I first moved to LA where it was basically like I would go show up to a party and I would actually like leave and, and without telling anyone and kind of kind of have a panic attack mm-hmm. and then like not answer my phone or, and, and not respond to the person when they'd be like, hey, where'd you go? And I wouldn't respond for like a week. Mm-hmm. It's gotten better, but it definitely, I still have bouts of social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think many of us do, maybe not to that extent, but that's why many yeah. of us drink. I mean, drink is yeah. the one social lubricant for a reason. <laughs> like, yeah. I this in my book, I'm like, what if many of us are more introverted and less kind of social than the world tells us we are supposed to do? And what if the fact that alcohol is so prevalent at so many parties is because actually everyone's feeling kind of anxious and weird in this situation? Like, what do I talk about? Am I being judged? Is what I said just idiotic? Can I even dance? Like, are my jokes even funny? And I kind of feel like we all have those things going on. So true. You know? I love that you also, you you speak about how um, social media has been a great place to meet people Kind of on a different level in a way. And again, I, I write about this in my book because throughout this path of kind of writing and speaking and doing events around sober curiosity, a lot of journalists that I've done interviews and things with will say, why do you think people are getting sober curious now? Why is this a movement? Why are more people stepping away from alcohol? And I often quote social media. I'm like, on the one hand, you can say that, yeah, social media in, in a way is kind of like stopping people from connecting in real life and it's creating this kind of age of disconnection in a way 
but actually it's also allowing us to find people who have similar interests, who we resonate with, who we vibe with, without having to brave the kind of like noise and bravado of bar culture and the party scene. For people who are not naturally disposed to that kind of socializing, I think that social media can be an amazing way to have really resonant and rich and deep social connections that don't require you to go through the anxiety of kind of putting yourself out there in that way. Yeah. I totally agree. So how do you, how do you, I mean, we met online. We did. <laughs> how did you, how did you kind of, in those months when you were struggling to make new friends, because again, this is something that people come up against a lot when they first get sober curious, like, how do I meet new people? And that goes for new friends. And it also goes for dating. Like one of the biggest questions we get is like, yeah, I'm down with the sober curious thing. Definitely don't want to drink apart from when I'm dating, like date, sober dating. No, cannot be going there. <laughs> but yeah. you, I mean, what were some of the ways that you began to build a new community for yourself and began to kind of get over this hurdle of like, how do I meet people? Well, I think that it took a, a little bit of time and I luckily was gracious with myself and patient with myself and I just I think I had you know a wake-up call where I was at in an event and I was just like I don't even want to be here I don't even know these people I don't want to hang out with these people these people aren't my people you know and and that was kind of a wake-up call um and I think what I did was I joined a yoga studio at the time I was I was waitressing and kind of blogging on the side and so I joined a yoga studio and I signed up for a 30-day challenge so I was going every day and I started to make friends through the yoga studio. And then I also was making friends through waitressing. So I, I, I ended up making friends with, with people and getting to know more people just through, instead of like meeting people through friends, I was just meeting people like through my work and through my daily activities. Mm. And I was actually really bonding with these people. And I think the some of the first people that I met who were, you know, sober curious were um, people that I met like through work and through waitressing and I would like start going on hikes with them and their dogs. And, and then I would start going to their, you know, they, a lot of them were actors and actresses and I would go to their, you know, their rehearsals or stand up things. And then um, I joined a dating app and dated this guy who also wasn't a huge drinker and who was at least very supportive of me not drinking. And that was really cool because all my ex-boyfriends before that had either been like drug dealers or alcoholics themselves. So not all of them, if any of my ex-boyfriends are listening. I'm not because I'm like, I love them again. Sorry. Okay. There's only, there, there's only one drug dealer and one semi-alcoholic. All the other ones were totally fine. Um, but this guy was, you know, very accepting of the fact that I like, like to stay in and be a grandma and we, him and I would be like grandmas together. We're not, we're not together anymore, but we're actually good, good kind of friends. Um, and so that was really cool to have a relationship where I didn't feel like I needed to. He also, he would always joke to me and say to me like, Hey, cause the first night we went out and we dated, we, I did drink and I, I did, you know, drink with him. And then, you know, two months into our relationship, once I had him like, quote unquote, hooked, I stopped drinking and I was like, hey, actually, I don't really like to party or I don't like to drink and I don't like to go out. And he would always make fun of me and be like, you really put on a good show, didn't you? And that actually kind of made me realize, like, I think I need to start like when I see people like showing people who I am from the beginning and not like pretending to be somebody else. Like, oh, cool. I'm this cool, super down girl who, you know, gets wasted and, you know, you can make out with. It's like, actually, no, hey, I like to be in bed by 8.30, and if you want to go on a date with me, let's go on, like, a 7 a.m. hike, because that's the kind of gal I am. Yeah. But, like, it just took time to get more confident in that, you know? But I, and I love the fact that you said, you know, you were gracious with yourself, you allowed yourself time, you didn't expect it to all click into place in one go. No. Again, you know, this, the name of this podcast is The Now Age, and in a way that speaks to this kind of how we how we stay human in this age of instant gratification where we assume where we kind of like are led to believe that any of our pain can be taken away with a pill any of our kind of like problems can be solved with a blog post like no it's not how it works like, <laughs> no process and it's a life's work like yeah with yourself can be a life's work like really yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um, I'm just curious, was the yoga studio a Bikram studio? You mentioned Bikram earlier. Yeah, so the, this one that I did in LA was not Bikram. It was heated vinyasa, but um, 
but yeah, Bikram yoga, actually my college uh, year um, in Philadelphia, actually that helped me quit my addiction to marijuana and cigarettes. So I, I definitely, um, for that time, my life, Bikram really did serve me well. Like I was able to fully give up, you know, I ended up smoking cigarettes later on in life, but, um, for that time in my life, it really helped me quit smoking. Well, yeah, the reason I asked is because again, it's another coincidence, but I, Bikram yoga was the first kind of yoga that I really found I connected to and really enjoyed. And it was doing my first, I went and done it once. It was doing the Bikram 30 day challenge. That was the first time I ever did a month without alcohol. And I specifically signed up to do it because I knew that having to get in the hot room every day would be, mm-hmm. enough, to, would be enough to prevent me from having a hangover basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, true. so yeah, I've since moved on from, from Bikram living in New York. It gets so hot here in the summer. I just can't mm-hmm. even I just can't even go there. So I kind of got out of the habit with it. But yeah, it really yeah. I have to say. Although I will also say I probably got a little bit addicted to Bikram. Like there's Me too. Amazing Bikram. When I the first few times I did it, I remember leaving it going, wow, I kind of feel a little bit like I'm on Molly right now. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. This is yep. awesome. Um yeah. And I do, you know, and you you kind of like speak and and share a lot about how for anyone who has addictive tendencies it can really be applied to anything whether it's alcohol whether it's partying whether it's other drugs whether it's eating even like social media is super addictive for so many of us um and I wonder as well like how you have come to recognize when a behavior is kind of veering into that addictive territory (laughs) and what kinds of tools you have to pull back from it um because yeah I'm I I see that in myself as well like work is a huge addiction for me because I love what I do and it's like it brings me all these you know it's it's healthy I love it etc and yet I can work 24 7 and get into a pretty pretty burnt out place as a result of it so I'm just really curious to hear what you how you kind of got things spiraling yeah, so that's such a good question because I actually kind of just felt like that last yesterday with my Apple Watch where I was checking it too much to making sure that I was getting the right amount of steps per day. And so today I decided not to put it on because I I saw that kind of obsessive behavior, you know, pulling at me and pulling at my attention and pulling at my my thoughts. And it's the same voice, the same thing that's like, ooh. What can we, what can we obsess about next? What can we dive deep into, dive deep into next? And I think a lot of that, that kind of drive that I have is, is, and and that a lot of people have is really helpful. Like addicts, if they want to do something, they get it done. Like when I was addicted to work, like I was, I was killing it. Like, you know, like it was great. Like it's so addicting because all these awesome opportunities are coming and, and yeah, especially if you're doing, you know, in something in our field, it's, it's healthy, it's, it's expanding. It's, you know, it's, there's not, it's at least it's not drugs. Right. That's what I kept saying to myself. And, and yes, to a certain point, I absolutely would rather be addicted to my blog than to um, Molly, but, <laughs> but I've had to really be careful because it makes me feel the same way at the end of the day. It makes me feel like this void is, is just, I'm always going to have it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, with, with age and with wisdom and with kind of experience, I have a very, very keen sense of when something's turning into an addiction. Um, and, and, you know, after the drugs and alcohol, I started getting addicted, addicted to soul cycle and exercise and, Um, and I was exercising all the time and I have a blog post on that about how I kind of had to stop that. And then I got addicted to healing my PCOS. And then earlier this year, I would say I was addicted to healing my heartbreak and I was addicted to just like the word healing, like, oh, I'm healing. And I'm, I'm addicted to that. And I was addicted to reading all the self-help books I could. Um, and so, you know, what's next, Lee? Um, and I think, one of the things that I'm realizing now and that I'm still learning is that I have an addictive personality and I, I just need to be aware of that. And one of the things that really helps ground me and where I feel when I feel my triggers 
come back up where I kind of feel the need to either, you know, use or the fat thought comes back or, uh, you know, or I feel like I, I want to engage in a behavior that is a little bit more destructive. Usually when I'm feeling a little bit less grounded and I'm lose, usually losing my sense of, of, of self. Um, and so one of the things that actually keeps me really, really grounded is, is my, my morning routine. And I know that sounds crazy, but when I, I, when I think about it, I, it really sets up a canvas for a day where I'm feeling really good about myself because I, I did something good for myself in the morning. And on the days or the months or the weeks where I didn't have it this year, um, as my, this is my first year sober. I haven't had a drink of alcohol since January 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about my routines and when I have like this whole year, I've been really good about a diligent about a morning routine and it has really helped me. And so, yes, I may be addicted to my morning routine, but it makes me feel really good. Whereas when I was addicted to my partying, I wasn't feeling that good. I like that focusing on, yeah, making regular or kind of like being addicted to the things that actually help to ground us. And I do think there's a difference between, for me, there's a difference between feeling grounded and feeling good because I can be feeling grounded, but I can also be feeling sad and I can also be feeling Mm -hmm. disappointed or I could also be feeling, you know, Um, but that idea of feeling grounded for me, it speaks to the idea of feeling within my, like settled in myself and um, a feeling whole, I suppose. Um, And I agree that having that morning routine is a vital thing for me. Something else that I do when I notice those addictive behaviors coming in is just to stop doing anything like to literally just do nothing try and clear as much space as possible to just kind of like take everything away and just really try to be present with what it's what I don't want to be feeling um I think that's been quite a quite a wow. me as well and also that's being beautiful um, but like being with people actually um when I know yeah just like putting myself in situations where I'm with people that I love or I oh, people that I love, but meaning people who really, I really do feel accept the full me, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. my brother who I'm super close to or Alexandra who I host moon club with, or my husband Simon, like just being with someone who I know fully accepts me and it comes back. It brings us full circle actually to perhaps us having a similar, you know, our, our mm-hmm. void being rooted in this similar thing of not feeling like it was okay to be fully 100% who we are as women mm-hmm. for that reason. Um, so for me, yeah, being, having found, I'm super, super grateful that I found people in my life who I really feel are completely accepting of everything that I am. So I love that. And I love what you said, how that morning routine, you know, or your routine or, or being addicted to something that grounds you, lets you hold space for things that you might not feel good. Cause yeah, I can still do my morning routine and be sad mm-hmm. and I can still do my, my morning routine and be feeling vulnerable or, and be feeling anxious and I'm not running from it. Mm. Um, whereas when I was addicted to exercising or work, I was running from something. Mm. And in this routine, I, I allow myself to be, and it's, it's, I allowed my, myself to hold space and it's, yes, it's living in the present. Cause part of my morning routine is meditating, even if it's just for 10 minutes. And it just allows me to kind of be present and be there for myself in a way that I need to show up for myself. Mm. It is kind of my own personal, you know, check-in with myself. How am I feeling today? It's not kind of, I'm going to really book my schedule today back to back so that I don't have to feel, Mm. you know? Exactly. Exactly. That addiction to busyness is so it. Yeah. You know, my my drinking kind of spiraled a bit when I moved to New York. And I was just, when you were describing your time in New York, I think that, I mean, I'm here in New York right now, so I can say this town, this town and London's the same. They're towns that are kind of built on the idea of like consumption as distraction, just doing more, more, eating more, drinking more, knowing more people, doing more work, like all of it's just more and more distraction, you know, this Mm -hmm. this idea of wanting to be busy rather than just like be. So yeah, super fascinating stuff. I love it. And yeah, so this is probably going to be airing, I would say January 4th, which is close to your one year sober curious anniversary. How cool is that? Oh, another little (laughs) coincidence. 
<laughs> Isn't it? Um, just to kind of wrap up, I so love speaking to you, but just to kind of finish up on this today, um, since it will be airing early January, I think a lot of people who are listening are probably going to be embarking on a dry January, maybe considering this sober curious thing for themselves. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of advice you have for anyone who's thinking about taking a month off drinking, who may actually want to be wanting to use dry January as a way to perhaps instill different drinking habits going forward. Like if you, for someone who want, who's wanting to make a longer change and just sees this as a chance to, to have a clean break, like what would your advice be for anyone who's, who's mm. entering into that? Well, I would say, first of all, you know, don't be, don't be shy. If you really truly feel like the first thing is if you truly feel like you are addicted and your health and your emotional well-being and your mental well-being is at stake, please, please, please do not hesitate to reach out to your support system or to a hotline for professional medical advice. There are people who are willing to listen. There are people who are willing to help you. I don't think that the sober curiosity journey is and should be a replacement for a serious drug or alcohol addiction. Or it, it can be, but it, it doesn't have to be. So if you're listening and you do feel as though you are struggling in a way that you do need that support, then please don't hesitate to reach out. There's no shame in asking for help. Um, and then for other people who are just interested in, you know, giving giving a month of alcohol free a try, um, my first my first thing would say would be to basically get a journal and and write down why you want to do this. Write down your reasons why, and then rip out that piece of paper and put it in your wallet. Uh, or if you if you want, you could also write it in your notes on your on your iPhone or your Android and keep it on your you know technology. But there's something about writing it on paper and keeping it in your your wallet. I did that when I was giving up alcohol. The reasons why I didn't want to drink, and I had about four or five of them. And your reasons are going to look really different from everyone else's. But write down your reasons and then make a commitment during that month to at least write in that journal at least four times. So at least once a week. It doesn't have to be every day. If you want to write in it every day, then you can. But it, but just once a week, check in with the journal and write how you're feeling and what you've learned and, and what you're thinking and how, how it's going. And I would also say, if you can, do it with somebody else. Do it with a friend. Do it with your partner. Do it with your, you know, your coworker. You get a group of your colleagues to all do it. Um, and it doesn't even have to be in January. It could be in February or March or April or whatever. Um, but get a support system and get a buddy. And, um, and it's also a great time to, to maybe check out a different hobby that you've been wanting to do, whether that's, you know, joining a yoga studio or doing a ceramics class or writing a book or reading a book or, I don't know, going and rescuing a dog. <laughs> like, get something, pick out a hobby and, and use that extra time now because you'll have a lot of extra time. Mm. And um, do something that, that you truly, truly love doing and give that time to yourself because it's super important. Oh, all such fantastic suggestions. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for reiterating as well that for anybody who feels that they need more help, there's never any shame in getting more help. Um, and in fact, it's probably one of the, the most kind and loving things you can do for yourself. So thank you for, for reiterating that. So important. Lee, I love talking to you today. I knew, I just knew that we, <laughs> we were going to have loads in common um, and this conversation would be so so helpful i believe for so many people who are listening thank you for sharing and just in general thank you for sharing today but just in general i really find your presence on social media to be so refreshing you are you. so much yourself there and i hope that i actually really hope that your um your success on social media and the the platform you've built for yourself there has helped you to feel like it's more okay to be yourself i truly believe that it probably has and um that really comes through so thank you again Thank you so much, Ruby. It's great chatting with you. I hope you found this conversation as inspiring as I did. One piece that really stayed with me and hit home was when Lee got emotional speaking about her rock bottom moment, this feeling of letting herself down on a deep soul level. This is such an important message. Feeling like we're wasting our potential, especially in these very difficult times that we're living through, can be heartbreaking. We each have so much to contribute and each of our contributions is so needed. I really hope that if you are getting sober curious, you could use the clarity that comes with that to really connect to what it is you feel like you're here to bring to the table. 
Lee and I are actually planning a Sober Curious themed event together for Los Angeles for the end of January 2019. So keep looking out for details on that. And if you're in New York, you can also come to the official Sober Curious book launch on January 9th. I'm going to be hosting a talk on why I believe the future is Sober Curious. And Diego Perez, who was actually the first episode on The Now Age, is going to be facilitating a Q&A afterwards. I'll include a link for tickets in the show notes. That's all for this week. Join me again next week for more conversations from The Now Age. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com, www.alloaudio.com. Thank you.